Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. I pray that you would speak to us once again by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today we continue our series focusing on the Psalms through Lent. In Psalm 19, the author declares his absolute delight in the law of the Lord. And the law of the Lord is, of course, a way of speaking of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. I'd like you, if you would, just to turn uh, to the psalm printed in our bulletins just for a moment as we look at the first part of this on page five. And uh, you will see that the psalmist's description of the law of the Lord is quite comprehensive. And you'll see this if you go almost follow your finger down those first three verses. You'll see uh, he, descri- he identifies the law six different ways. So we have the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments, the fear, and the judgments. And then with each of those, you'll see there's an adjective um, describing each aspect of the law. Again, extolling its uh, virtues. He says uh, the law is perfect, sure, just, clear, clean, and true. He then applies each of these qualities to life. Look at what the law does, he says. One, it revives the soul. When we are flagging and weary, the law of the Lord revives us. Two, it gives wisdom to the innocent. True wisdom is to be found in God's word. Three, it rejoices the heart. When we read of God's love and mercy and steadfast faithfulness, how can our hearts not rejoice? For the law gives light to the eyes. And in another psalm, Psalm 119, we read, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God has not left us without direction for our lives. And fifth, it endures forever. God's law stands the test of time. You know, the Ten Commandments, which we also had today, uh, are as up-to-date and relevant now as when they were first given three and a half thousand years ago. And finally, number six of these qualities in the psalm, it is altogether righteous. God's laws are good and fair, just and right. And, you know, the writer is so excited and enthralled by God's laws. More to be desired are they than gold sweeter than honey. God's laws bring light to our darkness, and in keeping them, there is great reward. And then, all of a sudden, it seems that the tone of the psalm changes. All that he said, of course, is true and right. And yet, it seems as if almost he's looked in the mirror, and he realizes just how far short of the law he himself comes. Verse 12, who can, who can even tell how often I offend? And he cries out, oh God, cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Oh, how we like to keep secrets. Oh, how presumptuous we can be with God, with others, 
And, and the psalmist makes this final plea that his words and thoughts would be acceptable in God's sight. And even as he does so, he acknowledges that the only way this can ever happen is with God's strength and with God's redemption. I wonder, do you delight in God's law? Do you celebrate his direction in your life? And what about those Ten Commandments where we see that great coming together of the law of God? How are you doing with them? Particularly as Jesus kind of interprets them further in his Sermon on the Mount, where he stresses how we're not merely to keep the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. So consider these ten laws. No other gods before me is the first commandment. Did God have your first allegiance last week? Number two, no idols. Have you worshipped anyone or anything apart from God this week? No wrongful use of the Lord's name. Hmm. Well, keep the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Have you rested and listened and been still in God's presence? Have I? Honor your parents. How's that going? No murder. Well, at least I can score full marks there. Or can I? Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. No adultery. Check. But any impure thoughts? Jesus said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everybody who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. No stealing. Anyone stolen time from an employer or been less than scrupulously honest? Anyone working on their taxes, perchance? No false witness. Have you exaggerated, criticized, second-guessed, judged? No coveting. No wishing we had what someone else had. Oh, boy. Where now is the delight of the psalmist? You know, I should imagine that many of us probably experience something of a disconnect between the delight in God's law that I'm sure we feel and the day-to-day -day reality of not keeping it. Between what we want to do and what we actually do. Between what we say we love and how we actually love. You know, I am so grateful for the Apostle Paul and his words to us this morning, wretched man that I am. Here we are on the third Sunday of Lent, knowing all too well that the just say no approach to sin is utterly inadequate. Indeed, if the just say no approach to sin uh, did in fact work, then Christ died in vain. If by our own efforts any of us can really fully keep God's law, then there's no need for a saviour. But one of the things that I think, if we're honest, we all learn pretty quickly, and I do at least, about the Ten Commandments, is that we can't keep them. Indeed, their very existence throws into sharp relief that very fact. The law is good. I am not.
no amount of willpower and determination within ourselves will ever enable us to keep God's law. But despair not. St. Paul has some help for us. In the face of this stark contrast between the goodness of God's law that the psalmist so eloquently champions and our inability to keep it, St. Paul presents us with three R's. Revolution, wretchedness, and rescue. A few people took me to task after the nine o'clock service about my spelling. I am aware of the silent W. First, revolution. This great nation of ours, of course, knows all about revolution and getting rid of a certain ruling power, which we don't need to dwell on this morning. But St. Paul has some important things to say about another ruling power. He's talking about sin. More specifically, he's speaking of the sin that is in each of our lives. And the fact is, every Christian daily faces battles as we struggle. As we struggle to do what God wants us to do, as, as we struggle to do what we know he wants us to do, as we struggle to do what we want to do, and not as the enemy wants. And that turmoil can get us down, but I think the point that Paul is making is the very fact that there is turmoil is evidence that a revolution is taking place. A revolution that only God's spirit at work in a person can bring about. It looks like a mess, but it's actually something of a miracle. Verse 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Do you ever feel like that? You don't want to sin, but you do. Maybe you entertain that lustful thought. Maybe you think or act selfishly. You speak before you think or... You know you should have kicked the wrong thoughts right out of your mind, but you didn't. And then immediately afterwards, you're saying to yourself, what am I doing? This isn't who I am. This isn't the person whose status has changed from being a slave to sin to being an adopted son or daughter of King Jesus. What is going on here? Well, at one level, the very questioning is evidence that something has changed and is changing in you. After all, before you were a Christian, perhaps you didn't have these wrestlings. Maybe you didn't notice some of these things. You didn't want to stop doing whatever it is you now want to stop. And if this rings some bells for you, then there is great hope. For I think you can safely assume that there has been a change of heart. You're not just wanting to avoid committing adultery, the letter of the law, but you're also concerned about the spirit of the law. You actually do want to have a pure heart. In verse 17, Paul says of his own continued sinning, in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. In other words, when I sin, it isn't the real me. Yes, I'm still responsible. Yes, I do it. But even as I'm doing it, I hate it. And the moment I've done it, I regret it. It's not, if you like, the real me. It's not the me I have become and am becoming in Christ. For deep down, I know that my status has changed. In verse 22, Paul says, For I delight in the law of God, like the psalmist. I delight in it, in my inmost self. And so the Christian is not just a forgiven sinner, he or she is that, but 
he or she is also a person who's been renewed and is continually being renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so St. Paul considers this frustrating mix of sin and obedience, of success and failure. And he thinks about this in his own life. And he draws the conclusion that a revolution has nevertheless happened and is continuing. So that's the first of the three hours. Those who've turned to Christ and have received his forgiveness, a revolution has taken place. So let's not forget that. The second hour, however, is the, the wretchedness of our spiritual, of our, sorry, our present life, if you like, our experience. It does feel wretched. It's very disturbing to, to see and uncover what we're really like. And so it's possible even for the very mature Christian to say, as Paul does in verse 24, wretched man or wretched woman that I am. For despite the presence of God's Spirit in my life, there's a performance gap. Paul wants to do what is right, and yet he keeps doing what is wrong. And yet, for all the wretchedness that comes with this discovery, it's not hopeless. If we're tempted to despair, we would do well to have something of this sense of perspective that Paul has. For Paul, it's not the fact that on occasions he fails, which is remarkable. Rather, it's the fact that he puts up a fight at all. The revolution is not complete, hence he feels so wretched. But the wonder is that the revolution of God's presence in his life has happened at all and is still a work in progress. Let me try and illustrate this. You know, when a child's learning how to walk, dad will call mum into the family room, quick, come and look at this. What is it? It's Bobby. He's taken three steps and he's still going. And mum will run from one end of the house to the other just in time to see little Bobby careering into some toys and collapsing in a heap on the floor. But the conversation never goes like this. Quick, look at this. What is it? It's Bobby. He's flat on his face again in the family room. No, well, of course he is. That's what we expect. That's not remarkable. It's not the falling. It's the walking that's remarkable. And I think there's just a sense of that that's true in our day-to-day -day Christian living. We shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves falling flat on our faces. You see, that comes naturally. But the walking, the real obedience to God from our, out of our hearts, that's the remarkable thing. And that only comes supernaturally in and through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, enabling us to extend grace when it's the last thing we want to do, enabling us to love others when we just don't want to, enabling us to love when we've been hurt or wronged. So I wonder, how do you rate your experience this morning? Are you frustrated? And if you are, then I just suggest that can be a good sign. It can at least be a sign of life, life of the Holy Spirit convicting you. It's a sign that we are God's people. We are a people in, in whom God's Spirit dwells. It's a healthy sign if your sin troubles you. It's a healthy thing if you notice it. Now, that is not to say that sin doesn't matter. Of course not. But it is to say 
that all is not hopeless. Paul's not abdicating uh, our responsibility, but the discovery he makes about himself is that the problem of sin is still uh, very much part of who he is. And that truth actually becomes more apparent, not less, as the Christian life goes on. We might think, as we grow in our faith, that we'll become less bothered with sin or temptation. I don't think that's the case. It may be different, but I think we notice more how far, far short we fall. I notice that. Now, if, on the other hand, these verses don't ring true in your experience, then perhaps it's a sign that you haven't surrendered your life to Christ and that the Holy Spirit's not present in your life. If the effects of the revolution make no difference, well, then has that revolution come about? You know, you may admire, many people do, the Ten Commandments is a great historical uh, set of rules to hold up. But has God written those laws on your heart? And if, if, if he hasn't, then do, do talk to me or one of the other clergy or a Christian friend. All right, the final, the third and final R this morning is for rescue. Paul cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer resounds, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how we find rescue. For the ultimate power of sin is defeated by Jesus. The in, inward conflicts that we so often experience is not the way it's going to be forever. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And that is when the revolution will finally be completed. That's when we'll no longer feel this wretchedness. For when Christ returns, he will rescue us, verse 24, from our bodies of death. But know this also, this is not just looking forward to that glorious day when Christ returns. For now, today, in the meantime, there is hope and there is help. Even in the midst of the conflict, even in the midst of the wretchedness. You know, if you go to the dentist and you have a tooth taken out because it's rotten, hopefully you won't feel a thing at the time because of the Novocaine and the anesthetic, right? But once you've come, gone home and the anesthetic starts to wear off, if someone asks you how you feel, you might answer, well, it's getting worse by the minute. And of course, it is, in a way, because you're feeling it. And yet the truth is, from the moment of the extraction, it's actually getting better. But as the anesthetic wears off, you're more aware of the kind of damage that was caused. And so I wonder, what would you say if I were to ask, not how's your mouth feeling, but how are you? How, what progress are you making as a follower of Jesus? Or as uh, Jeff Chapman said to us at the Lenten dinner on Friday, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? Are you living a life that is more holy today than a year ago? And I, and I think many of us would probably say, well, to be honest, it, it feels like I'm getting worse. I think I'm sinning more, not less. And of course, that may be true. That may be the case. But it's also possible that you are, albeit falteringly, becoming more holy, more Christ-like. And, and the distinction between what is good and holy and that which is not becomes clearer. But thanks be to God we can come back to him again and again and again. 
You know, the enemy, Satan, loves to uh, play with us and toy with us and, and get under our skin and tell us what immense failures we are, what useless Christians we are, and how we ought to throw in the towel because of the wretchedness. And yet elsewhere, St. Paul reminds us that believers are being changed. We're being changed from one degree of glory to another. This is a process of transformation. And so I think we can and should expect to experience a strengthening of our spiritual desires and a, and a renewing of our minds. But it doesn't happen overnight. Life is difficult and we will fail. We will stumble. We will sin. But rather than getting stuck there, let us keep on lifting up our eyes to Jesus, seeking his help, seeking his comfort, because he will not give up on you. You know, when you fall down, when you fail, go to him. He, he won't be there pointing an accusatory finger at you. He's not going to tell you what a failure you are, just like a good parent isn't going to tell the toddler learning to, to walk, oh, how disastrous, you fell over again. No, of course not. Rather, he will be delighted that you've come to him. Why? Because he loves you. Many of you have heard this a million times. But hear it again. It is so true and so remarkable that the almighty God the author of this law that is good and perfect and just and holy, this God loves you. This morning, I pray that you will hear that again, that you will receive his love, his delight, his forgiveness. For Jesus is the only one who can rescue us. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.